It's my delight to welcome as our preacher this morning, Dr. Stephanie Kramer. Um, Stephanie was a graduate of our first preaching cohort in this church, um, and she is now uh, a candidate for the diaconate in training for the diaconate. She's going to bring our word this morning. Thank you, Stephanie. Um, Good morning. Um, So this is a long and full passage from John to welcome you all back from spring break. You are not on the beach anymore. Um, So let me pray to get us started. Um, um, Lord, we pray that um, you would give us new life this morning. Um, You promised that your words bring us life. And we pray that you would do that this morning um, with the words that you have us read um, and the words that you'd have me speak. Um, We pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen. All right, so as the mom of three young kids, I spend a fair amount of time telling my kids not to use potty words. We're still at the stage where potty words are not actually so terrible, but it's worth teaching them the lesson now so that they don't say the really bad ones later. Um, But I want to talk this morning about what I think has become a potty word, a bad word in our culture, and that is the word authority. Seems a little like shudder, right? You'll find this word authority smack in the middle of our passage this morning. It's in verse 27 of John 5. So go ahead and turn to it now. It's on page 890 of your pew Bible. Now there's a lot packed into this morning's passage. It's long. So I just want us to stick with this theme of the authority of Jesus and know that there's more in there that we won't touch on today. Now I want you to think as you're finding this passage, what image comes to mind when you hear the word authority? Do you think about some political leader or a judge or law enforcement? Do you see your parents or a teacher or a boss? Who comes to mind when you think about authority? And then, what emotion do you associate with that word? I won't make you raise your hands, but I would bet that most of us have at least some negative emotions. Maybe fear or frustration or annoyance. Maybe the sense of feeling small or belittled or not listened to. Maybe you feel that they have power to determine your fate at work or school or just in life. Maybe you even have some potty words that come to mind. But let's think about what this word authority means. It only appears once in our text in verse 27, but it's implied throughout the whole passage. In English, the root word of authority is author. And so what is an author? It is someone who creates or invents something new. An author can be someone who comes up with a new plan or an idea. They are the author of those plans, um, or someone who writes a book or a poem. So what then is authority? Authority is when someone has power over what he or she has authored. Someone with authority doesn't just have power, but they also have the right to command or influence the actions of what he has authored. So just like the author of a book has a command over the words he writes, having authority is a little bit like having copyright ownership. So the Old Testament talks about the authority of Pharaoh over his people. And so we know authority is not always in the hands of good people. We really probably didn't need the Old Testament to tell us that, though. Um, But we also see this word all over the Gospels, particularly in Mark and Luke, where it says that the people marveled at the authority of Jesus' teachings and miracles. Now, remember that John's Gospel starts in the first chapter with Jesus as the eternal word that existed at the beginning of creation. It was a picture of this cosmic power far greater than our wildest imagination. And then John says in chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The fullness of God became fully human. 
What we've seen since that first chapter in John has been a series of personal encounters with this very human word who became flesh. We've seen personal encounters with Philip and Nathaniel, Nicodemus, the woman at the well, and the lame man. We've seen him turn water into wine, heal a boy with a word, and command a lame man to rise and walk. And in all of these pictures, Jesus has shown his authority through human interactions. We've seen him be a man in the flesh, interacting in very tangible ways with those around him. But in John 5, verses 19 to 47, our passage this morning, we have an extended discussion of Jesus' divine identity and authority. There's no person to heal or disciples to gather or wedding to save. Rather than human-human interactions, we have an extended monologue by Jesus describing who he is and what he has come to do. We're zooming back out to that cosmic picture. Now, at first glance, it might seem that there is no miracle here to see. This can seem like a theologically dense passage, which is stuck in the middle of a bunch of much more fun miracles to read about. But I think we'll find that John doesn't break his string of miracles in these verses, but rather describes for us perhaps the greatest miracle, if we have ears to hear it. So let's learn more about this authority that Jesus has by looking first at where it comes from, then at the purpose of his authority, and finally at why this authority is also a miracle. So where does his authority come from? On the one hand, this is an easy question because the text tells us directly, God the Father gives authority to God the Son. Look at verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. But let's back up a little bit to the verses above to figure out what exactly that means. Look at John 5, 19 to 24. And we're going to track through these verse by verse just for a little bit. Verse 19 starts by saying that the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So what does that mean? The Father and the Son are linked. The Son cannot act independently. The Son does what the Father does. Looking further in the passage down at verse 30, it says, I can do nothing on my own. Now, this is not meant to be cute imagery of like a little boy copying his dad while at work. This is not like bring your child to work day where you give him the fake badge and the little like harness and you let him pretend. The son is with the father, sees all the work of the father, and does likewise. The analogy of two instruments playing together in an orchestra would be more appropriate than our modern day image of a father and a son. But even the orchestra analogy falls short because technically one instrument can stop playing or make a mistake and the other can go on. But that can't happen with the father and the son. They are permanently connected, and their work is unified, always. Verse 20 goes on to say, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. So here again we see that the Son sees all that the Father does and that they're linked by love. Verse 20 ends with the promise that even greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. So think back to all of these signs and miracles that Jesus has already done in the first five chapters. Here is a promise of greater works to come. Moving on to verse 21, it says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So here we see the Father and the Son partaking in the same work, almost like co-authors. They're equal in their power and abilities, but also equal in their intent. 
They're not equal in power, but with different agendas, nor do they have the same agenda, but with different degrees of power. Their power and their purpose are equal and unified. Verses 22 to 23 says that the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So do you hear the emphasis that the Father wants to be sure that honor is given to the Son? Jesus was surrounded by people familiar with God as a singular being, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here he is clarifying that honoring the Father requires honoring the Son. They're linked, and worship cannot be divided between them. This is a buy one, get one deal, and you're not allowed to leave the other one on the shelf. Honoring the Father means honoring the Son. Now, if you jump down to verses 30 to 47 through this long paragraph, and we don't have time to go through it in depth, but Jesus appeals to his audience to consider the witnesses that also point to him as the Son of God. Verse 33 talks about John the Baptist who bore witness about Jesus. In verse 36, he refers to all the great works that he's done, that surely these bear witness that Jesus is the Son of God. Starting at verse 38, he talks about how people are searching the scriptures, looking for eternal life, and looking for glory in one another and in other possible messiahs. He's saying, if you really believe these scriptures, if you believed what Moses said, then you would believe me too. You would know those scriptures were talking about me. He's telling that if they don't believe that he's the Son of God, sent from the Father, equal with Father, doing the work of the Father, then everything they think they know about God amounts to nothing. Now, that's a lot of different verses to track through. Good job hanging in there. But it's worth emphasizing this point because look how much verbiage Jesus gives to the topic. We have three solid paragraphs of nothing but Jesus using rhetoric, using images and arguments to explain his relationship to the Father, and therefore the source of his authority. He speaks as much in these three paragraphs as almost all of the previous four chapters of John. So it's important that we hear what Jesus is trying to tell us. And so where does Jesus' authority come from? It comes from the Father. Not because the Father gave it to him and now like doesn't have it himself anymore, but because they are so united that the Father has transferred it to the Son. Anything the Father has is transferred also to the Son. Now remember that Jesus is speaking all of this to his first century Jewish critics who of course thought it was totally heretical to claim equality with God. Jesus here is trying to explain that it is not just that he is equal to God, but that he is, in fact, God. The difference there is not just a matter of semantics. It's very literally the difference between life and death, for Jesus and for us. He's not a person equal to God. He is God the Son, the eternal partner and equal to God the Father. And this is why he has authority from the Father, because he and the Father are one. So what is the purpose, then, of this authority? Let's remember our context. Back in John 5, chapters, um, verses 1 to 18, this is what Pastor John preached on last week. We saw Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath. He tells the man afterwards to take up his mat and walk. Now, the Jewish leaders got angry with Jesus for this because carrying his mat was considered work and not allowed on the Sabbath. But interestingly, Jesus doesn't use this setup to teach more about the Sabbath. Instead, Jesus wants to tell us about the things he's going to do with his authority that are far greater than simply asking a man to carry his mat on the Sabbath. He's saying to the religious leaders, hold up, guys. If you think that was a big deal, then what I'm about to tell you is going to knock your socks off. 
buckle up. Jesus plans to use his authority to give eternal life. Let's look at verse 24. It starts out with truly, truly, which we've already learned means to pay attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. So you hear how Jesus again links himself here with the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus plans to use his authority to give eternal life. Now, I think it's fair to be a little bit skeptical at this claim and to want to ask the question, well, but how is he going to do that? Who could ever make such a promise? And indeed, who could ever make such a promise? The promise of eternal life. Who could have such authority except perhaps the author of life itself? We have voices around us all the time that promise eternal life in one way or another. Every few years, there is a new favorite vitamin that we hope will cure all kinds of problems. There was a phase when everyone was obsessed with antioxidants, like blueberries and pomegranates. There is the everlasting vitamin D, B12, and fish oil craze that we hope will fix everything from feeling tired to curing cancer. There are diets that say only eat plants, and there are ones that say only eat meat. There are substances that can give us the feeling of invincibility and eternal life for a short while until they leave our system and we crash. There's the promise that if you can do something impressive with your life, buy land, give financial help to your children, and donate to causes that are important, it will be as though your legacy lives on forever, even if your body fades. So just think about the billions of dollars that are spent every year on products that make us look younger or live longer. And it's not to say that some of those, but often the question that they are really asking, the question behind the question is, what can I do to feel more alive? How do I get more life? And you know what? It's not a bad question. In fact, it might be the best question. The only problem is that they're asking the wrong doctor. Now, don't misunderstand me. Striving for longer and healthier life here on Earth is absolutely worthwhile. Jesus heals people that he knows will again physically die just a few years later. My entire job as a doctor is literally about helping people have more health and life, now and in the future. I have the authority to prescribe medicine and order tests and diagnose and give advice, but I do not have the authority to give you eternal life. And you should run away fast and far from any doctor or therapist or substance who promises it to you. So let's look back at this text. Verse 21 says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but passes from death to life. Whoever hears the words of Jesus is, and believes that the Father has sent him and honors him will have eternal life. There's no further qualify on that statement here. Those who hear the voice of the Son of God will not just live, but will move from death to life. The authority of Jesus is for the purpose of raising the dead 
to new and eternal life. And so finally now, how is this authority a miracle? Now we just talked about how Jesus uses his authority to bring us from death and into eternal life. Now that promise should feel miraculous to us. I think most of us would agree that pretty much anything that can resurrect the dead is a miracle. But resurrection and eternal life can also feel vague and far off. We don't walk around seeing people rise up out of tombs. Our loved ones who have died are still gone, and our bodies are still aging. Whether we believe in Jesus or not, we tend to think of eternal life as meaning something more like we just get really, really, really old. And honestly, living with a tired, imperfect old body forever doesn't feel like such a miracle. So luckily, that is not what Jesus is promising here. Let's look back at verse 24. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You've heard that verse a lot this morning. But if we track with these words, death and judgment are linked together. And hearing the words of Jesus and believing them are linked to life. Jesus defines death as coming into judgment. And we're going to talk about the judgment part in a minute here. But I want us to linger just for a moment on the word death. It is Lent after all. Jesus is saying that those who do not hear his words, nor believe that he is the Son of God, sent from God the Father, are still in death and have not yet passed into life. Now, death is a really physical thing. And Jesus is speaking these words to people who are physically alive. We all are physically alive. But he's telling them that without him, they are still dead. Jesus is using a physical reality, a physical word, to describe what it means for us to be without him, without his words. So I want us to really consider what it means to be dead. My first year in medical school, I spent a lot of time with dead people. All first year, you can laugh at that, it's fine. Um, <laughs> all first years take a course called Anatomy Lab. Along with a few classmates, you get assigned a body, a dead body, and it is yours for the next several months. Now these were people who generally donated their body, who generously donated their bodies after death for the purpose of learning. And for months, we discover them inch by inch, learning every nerve and artery and tissue and bone. And I recall staying late one winter night in the anatomy lab, quizzing myself on the nerves of the arm, my least favorite, um, for my test the next day, and looking up to realize that it was 9 p.m., it was dark, and it was just me and about 50 dead people in that room. They were cold and hard, and they smelled of formaldehyde. If you touched them, they didn't flinch. If you pushed, they didn't push back. If you lifted up an arm, it would flop back down. There was absolutely no mistaking any of them for being alive. Those of you who may have sat with family or friends as they died know that after that last breath, it is just so clear that life has left them. They get a stillness that not even the deepest sleep can give, and a coldness that not the coldest day can bring. There is no reaction to touch, no rise and fall of the chest to show breathing. Death is remarkably different from life. It is a violent stillness. 
If someone had told me that winter night in the anatomy lab that I would see those 50 dead people standing with me in church the next Sunday, I probably would have told them that they were crazy. They had spent too much time breathing in the formaldehyde and needed to get some fresh air. But that is exactly what Jesus is saying will happen to those who hear his words and believe him. Not that those 50 bodies will rise from the dead that same week necessarily, but that we all are just as dead as they are when we're without Jesus. We are not just lacking in eternal life or great life or happy life or decent life. We are lacking life itself. We're dead. The religious leaders Jesus is talking to were unable to stand righteous before God. They tried. They tried really hard. They gave themselves extra rules to follow that extended to every part of daily life. And yet, at the end of the day, they couldn't even uphold the most fundamental call to love the Lord their God with all their heart and mind and soul and strength and to love their neighbor as their self. And neither can we. We chant the Ten Commandments each Sunday of Lent not as a declaration of the life that we live, but as a confession about the life we are unable to live. It is a chant of judgment and of death if it were not for Jesus. So Jesus has the words that lead to life, but also the judgment that leads to death. And when we read the Gospels and hear people marvel at his authority, this is what they are marveling in. The ability of this one man, this son of God, to hold within himself the authority over both life and death. It is the ultimate authority. It is the type of authority that would corrupt anyone else. And when we try to hold this kind of authority ourselves, the result is injustice and evil every time. When Jesus is given this authority from the Father, what does he do with it? He lives a perfect life, a life of love, and service and sacrifice, and then he allows himself to be killed by the very people who deny and fear his authority. Jesus had the authority to bring justice and punishment to those who were unable to chant those Ten Commandments with a clean conscience. Rather than giving out judgments, though, he accepts it, and rather than benefiting from all the privilege that eternal life could afford him, he gives it up. The Father gave him the authority to judge and this is how he chose to use it, by receiving judgment on our behalf. And that is why this is a miracle. Because who else do you know would use their authority in that way? Who else can love so well, so powerfully, that it literally raises the dead from their tomb? So think back to those images of authority that I asked you to consider at the beginning. If you imagined a teacher Picture yourself on the day of your final exam. You sit down and you get the paper, you flip through it, and you realize you're not going to pass. You glance up nervously and you see your teacher stand up and walk over to your desk and motion for you to get up. He sits down and takes your test for you. You get a perfect score and you're free to go. That is what the authority of Jesus does for us. If you imagined a parent, picture yourself sitting at that dinner table, getting reminded of what you were supposed to be doing. You feel like a constant disappointment. But your dad gets up and walks over to the other side of the table where you're sitting, bends down and says, here, hop on my back. I'll carry you with me. That is what the authority of Jesus does for us. 
And if you imagined a judge, picture yourself in the defendant box trying to give an account of why you did the things you did and trying to put a spin on it all so it doesn't sound quite so terrible. And the jury walks back in the room, but instead of hearing their verdict, the judge rises, gets down from his judicial throne, and motions for you to leave the defendant box. He accepts the jury's guilty verdict, and you watch him taken away in handcuffs. The black robes turn orange. That is what the authority of Jesus does for us. So let's take this word authority out of the gutter, where we so often put it, and put it back into the heavens, or better yet, onto the cross. That's where it belongs. This is authority so miraculous that it means you will one day be worshiping the Lord in a room full of your loved ones who were once dead. This is authority so miraculous that it turns our Ten Commandments chant from a death march into a victorious parade because Jesus leads it. And this is authority so miraculous that it can resurrect us from death, not just in the future, but today. Amen.